all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 292 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Poughkeepsie Restaurant episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that on Main Street in Poughkeepsie, New York, is a very wonderful upper class, upper crust French American restaurant known as Brasserie 292. And with that wonderful little bit of Brasserie 292 Knowledge on 292 Main Street in Poughkeepsie, New York. I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. Have you ever been to Poughkeepsie, New York? What an, You never hear I have about not. Poughkeepsie, New York. You really don't. You really don't. I, I just thought that uh, it might be fun to, to look up. This is this is the the bottom of the well that I've come to, folks. I I have literally scraped it, and I am like, what can I do for interesting things about episodes now? And I'm literally googling addresses at this point. I wonder if there's a neat 292 Main Street address. <laughs> and this is what happened. I come across this place. It's got lobster bisque that you can get there. Uh, they, they've got a pork belly that you can get. Escargot. Foie gras parfait. I mean, you know, it's it's a wonderful restaurant. And uh, very upper crust. Highly rated on the old TripAdvisor and everything. And, uh, yeah, that's... Uh, but no, I, I, you know, you don't generally think of fine French dining and fine American dining in Poughkeepsie, New York. But apparently, Poughkeepsie has the hidden gem. Other than New York, New York, I, it seems like New Rochelle. Everybody talk. Everybody knows New Rochelle from the Dick Van Dyke show. I guess Poughkeepsie, New York, sure. will now be the French cuisine capital of of New York. Well, yeah, Buffalo had oj simpson back in the 70s so now poughkeepsie can have this and new rochester can have dick van dyke and then oh new rochelle new rochelle i'm sorry new rochelle new rochelle i've never been to old rochelle or original rochelle or just rochelle but um hey i I don't have anything else for this line of material i don't feel like we're doing very well (laughs) (laughs) we never usually do matthew but summer summer is coming to an end how how is your, especially your kids. How are your kids dealing with going back to school upon the horizon? They are so unbelievably excited. We have raised the weirdest children ever. Like, they get really excited at the end of the year. They're always excited for their vacations that are upcoming. So when it comes time for Thanksgiving break, Christmas break, spring break, stuff, they're, they're always happy to... to Go on the fun excursions that we do as a family or whatever. Just have some family time, et cetera, et cetera. But they absolutely adore being able to go back to school and see other friends and stuff. And my oldest is heading off into middle school now. And so we're going this week. They have their kind of meet the teacher stuff at the schools here in the area. And so we're we're doing the middle school tomorrow, or intermediate school, as it's called around here. And so we're we're going to go do that. We're going to have fun and explore this school here. And then on Thursday we have the elementary meet the teacher. And I'm still 
Uh, I'm still volunteering at the kids' elementary school, so I'm actually going to be there for that part of it. And um, so that's kind of fun and exciting. And then next week they start school. And we we were on top of it this year. We got everything done. All the school shopping's done. All the uh, school supplies have been purchased and all that good stuff. So, And they're happy with their back-to-school haircuts? They are. We actually... Uh, got a deal through the old J.C. Penny, as it were. They were doing $10 back-to-school haircuts. And so we made an appointment and went to their newly remodeled salon. At J.C. Penny, the clothing store. Yes, yes. Really? Because I mean, well, it's still a department store. I mean, right. it, it, it is truly one of the last remaining department stores. And they still have a salon department. Do people still call J.C. Penney's pennies? Remember my grandmother always called it pennies. Oh, we're going to pennies today. But Grandma, it's Saturday and 10 a.m. <laughs> I don't want to go to J.C. Penney. It's pennies. And then she'd slap me across the face with a raw fish. <laughs> Imprinted with the likeness of James Cash Penny himself. Um, no, no I, I, I don't know that anybody still does that. We, we just call it J.C. Penney. So that's that's what we call it. That's what the girls call it. And, um, you know, it's pretty much still a department store. So we get to go to the mall and then we'll do a little shopping there or what have you. But it's it's really pretty much the same thing as Kohl's now. So if you guys have like a Kohl's near you, a Kohl's department store, pretty much the same thing. And that's what JCPenney has kind of gone into. So it's not. It's not Walmart, Target. It's kind of a step up from that, but it's not real true department store stuff anymore. Can you get your haircut at Kohl's? You cannot get your haircut at Kohl's. Ah, so now it's a step up from Kohl's because you can get your you can get your haircut and your school pictures taken all in the same place. That's true. That's, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, and they had a really good deal a couple years ago on. Uh, vision service. So I actually went to, I actually went there and got, uh, 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 some contacts and stuff a couple years ago. So they even have an optical department. They, they really are. They still are the department store. I think all of our listeners will be, or all of our listeners, I'm sure our listener will be surprised to hear that we are in no way sponsored by JCPenney's, but, uh, we're really hyping them up. Hopefully, hopefully all of you. <laughs> Live by a pennies that's actually nice, and you don't go to the local pennies and realize that it's a dump. I was gonna say that also might be it also that also might be why we will go there occasionally because they because the the two that are near me are are decent like I go in and they're nice, they're clean, they've been recently remodeled, you know, and everything, and doesn't seem to be too much riffraff. Or anything like that in there. So, yeah. How about we get into some news? What do you say? Yes, please. Here we go, folks. It's the news. And first up from me in the continuing saga of MoviePass, note, as of the close of business on August 13th, which is when we recorded this episode, uh, 
HMNY, the parent company of MoviePass, managed to claw their way back from four cents all the way to five cents. So they're holding strong, folks. They've hung on to that five cents that they were at on Friday last week. Um, so I have no idea what that means for anyone who's not an investor, but to me, that just says this company still is in the shitter. And regarding that, from TheGuardian.com, by way of Charles Bermesco, The rise and fall of MoviePass, how Netflix for cinemas fell apart. After offering a movie ticket a day for less than $10 a month, the new company has experienced a string of financial setbacks. That's right. So, uh, Charles writes, Last week, industry trade deadline broke the news that Bruce Willis had signed on for a key role in the upcoming crime thriller, Ten Minutes Gone. The logline, Guy Loses Memory, Must Piece It Back Together Before Getting Off by Mob Boss, makes it sound like any other high-concept genre piece. But the real headline comes from the behind the scenes. Ten Minutes Gone is the first production fully undertaken by MoviePass Films, a studio-minded arm of the much-buzzed-about online ticketing service. MoviePass facilitated the distribution of fact-bending heist-caper American Animals earlier this summer and sank some of its own capital into the calamitous mobster biopic Gotti, as well as little-seen sorority slasher The Row. But Willis's latest project marks their debut as a fully independent project. Now, the movie, the, the, the article does go on for a bit from there. It also goes to talk about how they've crashed all over the place and burned. They've burned bridges with investors. They've burned bridges with the public. They're pissing off their customers. By the way, for the third weekend in a row, the app actually crashed and wouldn't let people check in. When people could check in, they had a choice between Mission Impossible and Slender Man. These are the only films available for the people who could check in. And they're desperately sending emails to people trying to say, no, please come back. They actually are letting people come back if they switch now. I got an email that said, if you come back, if you've recently canceled, please just agree to pay $10 a month for three movies a week and 2 to $5 discount, what we talked about last week on the show. And if you accept the changes, we'll reactivate your membership. I can tell you confidently, I did not accept the changes. I, yeah, the, the, the movie, this article here, not only talks about how MoviePass has started off with this wonderful idea and how it kind of changed the way that people saw movies over this last year, which in and of itself is kind of good. It talks about raising, um, the profile of movie going, of the movie going public, uh, their movie theater chains were reporting increased traffic during the week, more people going to see movies by themselves, more people doing what is referred to as a blind buy, where you, you know, just, oh, this looks interesting, and you just go in and go see it. But MoviePass also has screwed the pooch in a lot of different ways, mainly by not by by not being smart in how they distributed the service and used their subscriber base. The article also goes into kind of why they think that this is a good idea to make this movie. I personally don't even know if this movie is going to get made or not. But I would encourage you to read this article and 
Tim, I am curious, what do you think about this? Do you think that a company that is literally running the risk of being delisted from the NASDAQ, um, if, if they can, if they can somehow hang on, they will be delist, delisted from the NASDAQ in December. You think they should be trying to make movies now? What, what are your thoughts, sir? I don't know. I mean, Bruce Willis is such a huge draw right now. <laughs> Still, right? I mean, look at Death Wish. Death Wish brought in $150 million from its box office. Not. I mean, if they were actually wanting to pique anybody's interest, why do they want to make a B-grade or C-grade sounding movie with a B-grade actor? You know, wouldn't they want to try to make quality films so that maybe they would actually garner some more respect from people? Their business model just seems absolutely stupid. I bet AMC has been kicking themselves in the ass, wishing that they started doing this. I know they're doing that AMC Stubbs thing that you're a part of now, Matt. The 1999 a month where you can see any three movies... 2D, 3D, IMAX, whatever, any three movies a week. I'm sure they were hoping they would have done this years ago. But the thing with AMC, the reason why they can get away with doing $20 a month is because they already have a solid foundation. They run their own theaters, you know? They run their concession stands. They give, they get money from the concession stands. So they already have a lot of profit coming in. Now, because of this, are they going to still get a lot of profit? It's hard to say. Because, like what the article that you just read was saying, people are now doing these blind buys, making these blind movie choices. More people are going to see documentaries that maybe they would not have seen before. Because they look at these memberships, these clubs, as if they're not really having to spend a lot of money, or it's not their own money going towards these movies. And with AMC, people are limited to only AMC theaters. So you're only buying AMC concessions if you are buying concessions. So I think it's absolutely smart for AMC to do this, and I think people should just gravitate towards AMC if you don't have any of these other art house theaters by you. Because honestly, I don't think MoviePass is going to last too much longer. I think it's only going to dumb itself down even more. I could even see it maybe limiting itself to only a handful of chain theaters like the Landmarks, which features electronic ticketing. That's the one that I go to. That's pretty much the only reason why I still have movie pass is because I can go see any new movie there and not have to worry about a surcharge or even blackout showtimes. I can see movie pass joining forces with Landmark or some of these other theaters because I really don't see this Bruce Willis movie doing well. Now what's going to be annoying and going to really piss people off and might actually be that final nail in their coffin, it's not going to be probably that great of a movie to get people to sign up to actually use MoviePass to go and see it. You know what I mean? And if it's any indication by the quality that the synopsis puts off, I guess, and the quality of films that Bruce Willis has had a hand in over the past five, ten, six years or so, 
it sounds like even people without movie pass are actually going to pay the 15 and 20 bucks or however much it is now or will be at the time to go and see this possible schlock. It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell if they're actually going to make something that's actually good or if they're going to phone it in or, you know, throw in the towel and just make schlock just because they think it's going to be an easy cash grab. I don't know if you feel the same way, Matt, but it just seems like they come up with these ideas and for any other company, it probably would be a good idea and possibly work. But because it's MoviePass and it, because of their business model, there's a high risk of it not working at all. But yet they still try to act upon these ridiculous but still novel ideas. I can see where you're coming from on that. I will say that I do not believe that this can work in any way, shape, or form with the existing management structure that MoviePass has. I think Mitch Lowe is going to have to be ousted and or probably most of the board for any of this stuff to take. Because it would make sense in a certain in, in a certain way for MoviePass to make any kind of movie. It could be an action movie. It could be a, a, high, a high drama. It could be a thriller movie. It could be a documentary, what have you. I don't, that to me isn't the problem. The problem is, is that they have no way to recoup the cost. So they would have to work with another distribution partner and the distribution partner would also have to then work with like Landmark or something like that. So that their, so that their recoup cost, because MoviePass stands to lose money twice. They stand to lose money making the movie and then they stand to lose money paying for the people to go see their own movie that they paid to make. And, that's why I don't see them doing that because people are leaving movie pass at this point in droves. And they, like I said, you haven't been able to, if you leave movie pass for the last nine months, you can't come back for nine months. And now they're sitting here going, please come back and we'll let you just, we'll just let you come back. So, um, and they still, and this still doesn't take care of the people who are annual subscribers who are still currently fucked over. So it doesn't matter what kind of movie they make. I think with the current management structure, it's all for naught. So that's where I'm at on that, sir. But if you would like to check it out for yourself, again, uh, theguardian.com by way of Charles Bromesco, The Rise and Fall of Movie Pass, How Netflix for Cinemas Fell Apart. What do you got there, Tim? From the thehollywoodreporter.com, posted today. August 10th. Actually, no, today is not August 10th. Last Friday was August 10th. Uh, today we are recording on August 13th, which is a Monday for reference. Uh, via thehollywoodreporter.com, Chris Pine and Chris Hemsworth, Star Trek IV Future in Doubt as talks fall through. And this is an exclusive for The Hollywood Reporter written by Boris Kitt. And it says this, Chris Pine and Chris Hemsworth are no longer boldly going where no person has gone before. The two actors were in negotiations to star in Star Trek IV, but sources say that talks between the two actors and the companies making the new installment, Paramount Pictures and Skydance Media, have fallen apart, with both sides walking away from the table. Deal-making with other returning cast members, including Zoe Saldana, Zachary Quinto, Carl Urban, Simon Pegg, and John Chu, was expected to follow. 
Pine was due to reprise his role as iconic sci-fi hero Captain Kirk, which he has inhabited for three movies, while Hemsworth was to have played his father in a time-traveling adventure. Hemsworth played the role in the prologue of the 2009 film that rebooted the franchise. The deal points came down to the usual suspect, money, Pine and Hemsworth, among Hollywood's A-list when starring in DC or Marvel movies, are said to be asking the studios to stick to existing deals. Paramount, according to insiders, contends that Star Trek is not like a Marvel or Star Wars movie and is trying to hold the line on a budget. The actors, according to sources, insist they have deals in place and that the studios are reneging on them, forcing them to take pay cuts as they try to budget a movie that is following a mediocre performer. Pine, at least, has had a deal in place for several years. The actor, now a key player in the Wonder Woman franchise, signed up for a fourth movie when he made his deal for 2016's Star Trek Beyond. Hemsworth has been attached to Star Trek IV since Paramount, then run by the previous regime, headed by Brad Gray, announced the fourth installment in 2016, although his exact status remains murky. The studio, however, is backing its budget tough talk with past performance numbers. The last installment, Star Trek Beyond, grossed only $343 million worldwide on a budget of $190 million. In fact, one insider says that the company actually lost money on the pick. The 2009 reboot that kicked off the run of movies titled simply Star Trek made $386 million, while 2013's Star Trek Into Darkness is the top earner of the Star Trek movies with $467 million. Meanwhile, Marvel, DC, or Star Wars films regularly gross north of $700 million, not for lack of trying, the Star Trek picks seem to have a ceiling, especially globally. End all quotes there. The article does go on for just a little bit more. Matt, what do you think about this? Do you think it'll be sad to see especially Chris Pine leave the role of James T. Kirk? Uh, do you think the studio is in the right? Because it's obvious Star Trek movies don't make as much. I think to be fair, though... Chris Pine was paid not as much for the very first movie, and with each film, he was paid a little bit more. So in some weird way, I could see him getting paid a certain amount for the third film and then having to back his salary down significantly because of the poor performance of the third film. But you really can't do that with these actors, you know. I mean, we've heard about this with Jennifer Lawrence and her pay cuts for certain films and realizing that she was the only one getting pay cuts, but nobody else was getting pay cuts. Um, we have no idea how much J.J. Abrams is getting paid as a producer. We have no idea how much the director is getting paid. I, what do you think about all this? I just simply look at it as, what if the shoe were on the other foot? I mean, if Chris Pine realized how much money they were making and wanted to get a bigger piece of the pie because he got screwed, legitimately or not, he got screwed over in his contract, you think Paramount would change their tune? Hey, buddy, you signed that contract. That's your name on the dotted line. So this is what you're going to get. And I think it's fine that Chris Pine is wanting to say, I don't care what money, money, what amount of money you made in the interim. It's not my fault you don't know how to make a movie. 
you you said that if we make these deals, you're going to pay me this amount of money. Hey, look, that's your name on the dotted line. Pay up. You pay up, I'll show up. I don't I don't feel bad for him at all. Unless and let's not forget who's Lieutenant Uhura in this movie. Oh, that's right. Zoe Saldana. Oh my god, Gamora. What the fuck, right? So no, I I think Chris Pine is perfectly within his rights to do that. Not to mention Chris Hemsworth fucking Thor. Uh, yeah, you, there's just no way he can back down on this. Also, this whole fucking franchise exists and hinges on the fact that they actually got the time travel right. It's like the first time in the history of the world they've ever gotten time travel right in a franchise like this. And they're will- and they're trying to go back to that well on the fourth movie and fuck it all up. I kind of hope the movie doesn't get made. Well, they're only doing it because Quentin Tarantino is supposed to be working on the script. Because he, he made a comment about an episode of Star Trek... I don't remember if it was Generations or which Star Trek TV series it was, but he said, hey, I mean, if you're going to reboot the series and if I think maybe it was in a discussion with somebody with a reporter and he said, if anybody asked me to reboot the series, I would take this storyline from this series. And he went on talking about why and like what all you can do. You can play with the tone of it a little bit more because if they're going into a different dimension or something now they could be cursing they don't have to follow all the gene roddenberry rules and all that jazz which personally i like the gene roddenberry rules but yeah it was uh it was tarantino who kind of got the ball rolling with bringing back the time travel or interdimensional travel or whatever it's going to be either way i i'm just look i not that i don't have faith in quentin tarantino because i mean i can definitely see where he would be going with that but at the same at the same time no and and there's no way they're going to recast they they just can't recast they're going to have to cough up the money and take the money out of something else um and if they don't then the movie's not going to get made because i can tell you right now if they try and shaft chris pine and subsequently chris hemsworth there's no way they're going to get zoe saldana on board there's no way they're going to keep simon pegg that i mean it's just they would have to recast everybody and I don't see that happening at all. So, for whatever it's worth, don't worry about trying to get your Star Trek fixed this way. Patrick Stewart's already signed on to, new, to do a new TV series for Star Trek, and it's The Further Adventures of Captain Picard. I, I mean, Matt's working title for the series. But, they're, yeah, so they're going to... It's like 20 years after after TNG, and Picard's not done yet, so... You get your get your get your fix there. That's what I have to say. Sure. Now, do you want to see them recast Chekhov? No. Or are you okay with him just not returning? I could. I, I mean, as much as I would not want to see that because of the respect that needs to be paid to the actor, I would at least understand if they did something to kind of write him out of the to kind of. To kind of at least do a, a small send off for him, so maybe, maybe something along the lines of what they did for Rogue One, right, uh, with Grand Moff Tarkin and Princess Leia, mm-hmm. have an have an act in stander and then a stand in actor and then put the map, the face over it, 
just for just for like a minute or two or something so that they could like send him off. But outside of that, no, I'd be fine with them just not recasting. Yeah. Okay. Well, then this is going to be a real easy, quick one. Uh, we've got from Deadline.com by way of Bruce Herring. Marilyn Monroe lost nude scene from The Misfits Discovered. That's right, folks. A nude scene, long believed lost, featuring Marilyn Monroe and John Huston's The Misfits, has been rediscovered. The footage cut from the film by Huston was previously believed to have been destroyed. Arthur Charles Casillo made the discovery during the research for his book Marilyn Monroe, The Private Life of a Public Icon, out via St. Martin's Press. Uh, Casillo interviewed Curtis Taylor, son of Misfits producer Frank Taylor, and learned that he kept the footage in a locked cabinet since his father's death in 1999. In a love scene with Clark Gable, Monroe dropped the covering bedsheet and exposed her body. It would have been one of the first, if not the first, nude scenes by an American actress in a major production in the sound era of film if it had made it into the final version. Director John Huston refused to include the nude scene, allegedly because he felt it was unnecessary to the story, but Frank Taylor believed that it was important and so groundbreaking that he saved it. That's right. I'm going to go ahead and just read the last little bit of this article. It says that The Misfits was filmed in 1961 and written by Monroe's then-husband, Arthur Miller. It tells the story of three cowboys vying for the attention of a beautiful woman. It was Monroe's final film before her death. What will become of the found footage has not been decided, Curtis Taylor said. That is the end of that brief article. If you'd like to check it out, including all the related links and pics, head on over to Deadline.com. Again, by way of Bruce Herring, Marilyn Monroe, lost nude scene from The Misfits, discovered. Tim, thoughts? Interesting. I highly doubt they'll put it back in the movie for an ultimate cut, or and I highly doubt they'll include it on any Blu-ray or anything like that, but... That would have been interesting. I mean, that was 1961, so I mean, I guarantee you, it would have it would have gotten a lot of people into the theater to see the movie. Yeah, I mean, Marilyn Monroe was definitely hot right then, and that would have been a sight for a lot of people to see. That would have wanted to see. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, I I I think that now that it's been reported, I give it. I'm gonna be respectful here. And I'm going to say by Christmas it'll be a view, it'll be available online. But they don't say that the quality is good, though. I don't think the quality has to be good. I'm just saying that the scene itself will find its way online. I predict by Christmas. Anyway, what else do you have there, sir? Via IndieWire.com, there will soon be a list of every popular movie you can't watch anywhere online, from True Lies to Cocoon. This here was written by Jenna Murata, and it was published on August 10th. I know a prob- this is me, Tim, talking here. Uh, I- I'm sure a lot of you were wondering, well, it's about damn time. I said it's about damn time once I first read this because I am one of the three people that do the the actual DVD and Blu-ray rental through Netflix. And I constantly am doing some research to make sure that the Blu-rays or DVDs that I have in my physical queue here, I cannot find them anywhere else. Because there are a whole slew of movies that I've realized, movies that I realize that I've been wanting to see, and I have not yet because they're not available anywhere else, uh, you know, to actually stream on any of the platforms that I have. But again, IndieWire.com, there will soon be a list of every popular movie you can't watch anywhere online, from True Lies to Cocoon, uh, and it says this: screenwriter John August, a big 
Fish, BAFTA Award nominee and co-scribe of Disney's upcoming Aladdin remake, is seeking help from fellow cinephiles. He is in the process of compiling a list of popular movies from the past few decades that are not available to legally buy, rent, or stream online. The project began Thursday after August tweeted at Ron Howard asking the whereabouts of his fourth directed feature, Cocoon. His tweet read, quote, Hey, at real Ron Howard, this is crazy. We want to see Cocoon. Do you know why it's not on iTunes, Amazon, everywhere? End quote. An hour later, August solicited other films that internet users cannot watch. And he says, I'm curious how many other movies aren't available online, so I'm starting a list you can add to it. The article continues, the growing record covers English language titles from 1980 to 2016 that placed among the top 100 earners at that year's domestic box office. Some of the world's most lauded directors have films no one can seem to find digitally, including Peter Bogdanovich, William Friedkin, Mel Gibson, and David Lynch. However, Howard has a second entry on the list, Willow, while his fellow Best Director Oscar winner James Cameron also has two so far, The Abyss and True Lies. Also absent are a pair of Colin Firth features, Circle of Friends and A Single Man, plus Robert Downey Jr.'s Heart and Souls, and Jessica Lange Films, and the sophomore screenplay from Cameron Crowe, The Wild Life. August is also the mastermind of the Highland screenwriting app. To add additional films missing from the web canon, uh, there's a link to click here in this article. And if you click the link, it takes you to docs.google.com slash forum slash d slash e slash 1FAIP. You just go to our website and we will have that link there if you're interested in taking place. Uh, so I was a little misleading before I read this article. They are specifically talking about movies that you cannot find anywhere. Not just movies that you can stream on Netflix or 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 on Hulu or Amazon Prime or any of that stuff. But you can even find it on on VOD or anything like that. I think this is interesting. I think this is cool. I will say this about The Abyss in True Lies. I believe the reason why we can't find True Lies or The Abyss uh, streaming on any of these sites is because I'm pretty sure James Cameron is in the process of remastering these films. Both of them are about to hit a milestone, or have already hit a milestone, uh, not long ago, in regards to how long they've been out. So I'm sure the studio, and especially James Cameron, is wanting to release a remastered version of these films on 4K and HDR. So I have a feeling that's probably the reason for his movies. For all the other ones, I have no idea. Matt, um, what do you think about this? I think this is a very handy uh, list to have, because it definitely puts these movies on people's radar so when they are available maybe it'll get people interested to go out and either buy them or get a copy of them or watch a copy of them somehow yeah i'm i'm totally good with the idea of having a definitive list i think it i think it would be a great tool to have so that as you said you know if you need to go and pick it up in physical format or if you can start tracking it down to see if there are going to be specialty versions of this coming, um, or if you need to start working on eBay and looking up old DVD cases and VHS cases in the event that certain movies are beyond, you know, that threshold. 
I don't think that, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty cool. My last piece, as it turns out, is the most divisive. <laughs> from HollywoodReporter.com by way of Scott Feinberg. And this is actually back from the 8th of August. Uh, Oscars won't televise all awards live adds popular film category. That's right. The, the Academy's Board of Governors has approved several major changes to the tradition-bound ceremonies format in the hope of retaining the dwindling number of Oscar telecast viewers it still has and luring others back into the fold ahead of the 91st Academy Awards on February 24th, 2019. That's right. Major change is coming to the Oscars. Just five months after the lowest-rated Academy Awards telecast on record, a mere 26.5 million viewers turned in, tuned in. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Scientists... Scientists? I can read. It's not late. I haven't been working all night. I'm so sorry. Let's try this again. The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Board of Governors not only re-elected cinematographer John Bailey as its president, but also approved several major changes to the tradition-bound ceremonies format in the hope of retaining the viewers it still has and luring others back into the fold ahead of its 91st Academy Awards on February 24th, 2019. To address the concerns of those who find the show to be too long and boring... Uh, thanks largely to the current existence of 24 competitive awards, of which the general public only cares about a few, Bailey and Academy CEO Don Hudson said in a letter to members that the board has, quote, committed to producing an entertaining show in three hours, end quote. They explain that this will be achieved partly by, quote, presenting select categories live in the Dolby Theater during commercial breaks, categories to be determined, end quote. Those categories will not be removed from the telecast. Instead, quote, the winning moments will then be edited and aired later in the broadcast, end quote there. This new format is similar to the one employed at the Tony Awards, which are annually broadcast on CBS to recognize some of its lower-profile categories. Uh, the Tonys present those awards and record acceptance speeches of them during a pre-telecast portion of the ceremony rather than during commercial breaks. Presenting them during commercial breaks is probably intended to make nominees in those categories feel more integrated into the heart of the telecast. That is a parenthetical statement regarding the Tonys. The fact that this change has been endorsed by the Academy's Board of Governors, which is dominated by representatives of below-the-line branches whose Oscar winners could be impacted by this, is a testament to how dire the situation is as far as the telecast's ratings. Still, one can safely expect a groundswell of protest from, the mem from some of the members of those branches. Uh, goes on to say that uh, at least as important in terms of improving the ratings of the Oscars telecast for ABC, the Academy also said in, in its letter that it, quote, will create a new category for outstanding achievement in popular film, end quote, in time for the 91st Oscars, adding that, quote, eligibility requirements and other key details will be forthcoming, end quote. Some people will complain that adding such a category cheapens the prestige of the Oscars, making it more like the People's Choice Awards or MTV Movie and TV Awards. But that is old world thinking. More than the length of the telecast or the name of the host, Oscar ratings have been shown to correlate with the popularity of the nominated films among the general public. And the gulf between what the public buys tickets to see and what the Academy nominates and awards has never been greater. 
If the popular film award, likely to be named the Popcorn Oscar, is implemented in time for the 91st Oscars, then there is little doubt that ratings will improve since blockbusters like Black Panther, Avengers Infinity War, Deadpool 2, Mission Impossible Fallout, and Mamma Mia, here we go again, and their fan-favorite stars will be guaranteed a presence at the ceremony. I'm going to stop there. That's uh, There's about maybe about 20% of the article is left in turn as well as the full text of the Academy's message. So I want to stop there because that's really the heart and soul of everything. Again, HollywoodReporter.com by way of Scott Feinberg. Please check this out for yourself. Oscars won't televise all awards live. Adds popular film category. Tim, I know you are chomping at the bit because we already talked about this a little bit. So I, I know you're literally chomping at the bit here. <laughs> I've cooled down a little bit. Diatribe, begin! It, it's actually not not too bad. I um, The article that I originally read last week, it didn't mention that they were going to call it the Popcorn Oscar, I guess. When I first read about this, I was, I think it would be stupid for me to say I was upset. But it was just, it was kind of annoying. Because whenever I do think of the Academy Awards, it's, a, you know, it's, it's in a way, it's a prestigious event. You know, there's something artful about it in the, in the movies that it wants to represent or, or acknowledge. And there's something about the popular award that just makes me think of the Grammys or the MTV Movie Awards just for the sake of bringing in viewers and making money. And so it just kind of cheapens my initial feelings toward this. I just felt that that just kind of cheapens the effect of what the Academy Awards, what it is. And from other perspectives, people could argue, well, doesn't politics cheapen the award ceremony as well? And in some cases, you're absolutely right. However, I've I was very pleased with the past Academy Awards that they decided not to be overtly or overly political, which made for more of, I thought, an enjoyable Academy Awards experience. Personally, I don't I mean, a lot of people hated it. It didn't bother me too much. It felt a little more old fashioned. And by God, I don't see anything wrong with old fashioned when it comes to award shows, especially. I mean, hell, I was just watching some award show geared towards younger people uh, was on tonight and watching it. And you're just seeing a lot of young girls wearing clothing that I wouldn't think they would want to be shown on TV wearing, you know what I mean? And these are all people that are under the age of 18 that are minors. And yet when I look at stuff like that, it doesn't draw me in. I don't get anything from it. None of that means anything to me. But when I watch the Academy Awards, for instance, or in other award shows or whatever, the movies, again, that they represent, that they acknowledge, are ones that I actually appreciate. And there's, of course, something in the back of my head that bugs me to think that back in 2008, Step Brothers could have won an Oscar, you know, because that was one of the more popular films of 2008, you know, and even Mark Wahlberg has come out saying, oh, I would have already won multiple Academy Awards because multiple uh, movies of mine were the popular movies like Ted and the other guys and other uh, popular raunchier movies, I guess, that he's been in would have probably gotten that award. But thinking about it now, if they wanted to award, if they wanted it to be a popular award, if they were going to call it a popular award or whatever you called it, uh, or whatever the article calls it, 
and maybe it's not an actual Oscar, but maybe something different. It's an acknowledgement. I can get behind that. However, I don't want that to take away from all the other departments, all the other aspects of filmmaking that are not going to be recognized. Like sound, for example. There's a good chance that more than likely sound editing, sound design, all that's going to be a part of the group of awards that are going to be taking place during the commercial break. So... Yeah, we'll get like a highlight, a little montage, but if the show's already running too long, I highly doubt we're going to see their acceptance speeches at all throughout the broadcast. So there goes those awards just out the fucking window. And I work with people that never really realized how important, say, sound was or even cinematography because, oh, I mean, since the president is a part of cinematography, you know, I don't, I doubt that category is going to be lifted from the actual broadcast, but I've met people who have seen these, what we would consider non-special categories, and they garner more appreciation for them because of what they learn from these broadcasts and what they read up on and study because they hear about, oh, Baby Driver, a movie that we liked, it's being nominated for all these sound awards. We understand why, because we got that from this movie. You know, we, we, we understood why sound was important for that film. I don't know if I'm making any sense at all, but I would just hate to see all that being overshadowed by something like the popular award. But other than that, if it's just a different award that people get, that a movie gets, and that's all it is, I'm okay with it. But again, I just don't want them to overshadow the, all these technical awards whom their winners definitely deserve the spotlight more so than the popular awards. And that's really all I got to say about that. Okay. I definitely can appreciate where you're coming from on that. And I agree that the technical awards are very important. I think they are very, very important when it comes to visual effects, sound and sound design, um, sound editing and sound design, because those are usually key in getting these popular films to be as popular as they are. Now, sure, costume design plays into that, cinematography plays into that, the soundtrack plays into that, best song can play into that, depending on not maybe maybe not necessarily your Marvel movie, but generally like your Disney movie or your Pixar movie, something like that. So I I agree that the technical awards deserve their definitely deserve their day and that they shouldn't be diminished by this. But I do think that at least with the introduction of this popular award that will then help shine a light on, wow. Okay. So I think that if they place the popular award in the right spot, say, I don't know, let's, let's, um, Let's say that maybe they do cinematography, sound design, sound editing, popular award, right? And the people who, the people and and the nominees for the popular award are pretty spread out among those three categories. Uh, Maybe even four categories where you do score or music direction or something like that, right? And then they can see leading up leading into that all these technical awards that then are celebrated and kind of capstoned by this popular award 
And, and who knows, that may not be what they do. But let's just for say, you know, just for fun, let's say they do that. I think it helps to reinforce what makes the technical awards so, so important. And it, and yes, they're referring to it in this article as the popcorn award and, or the popcorn Oscar. Make sure I'm saying that right. It's probably likely to be nicknamed the popcorn Oscar. Um, I don't know what that award will look like. I know you had mentioned in the pre-show, perhaps maybe they would get like a certificate or something like that. But they can't actually make it popcorn because that's the MTV Movie Awards thing is a bucket of popcorn. Um, I don't know that the statuette makes that much of a difference in that regard only because of things like the Lifetime Achievement Oscar, uh, generally given to those people who, for whatever reason, right, wrong, or indifferent, this is not a judgment on this, but just kind of a statement of re- the reality of the situation. But generally, the Lifetime a- the Achievement Oscar is given to someone who did not win a, a, a competing Oscar. So does that mean that that person deserved it any less and shouldn't get the statuette i don't know well usually with those people with the lifetime achievement oscars they have a history in film you know like uh like robert altman for example robert altman got the award in 2006 and he never he never won yet he has made some of the best absolutely best films in american cinema and I don't, I don't disagree, which is again why I'm saying this is not a value judgment, nor is it any form or fashion of a judgment on the hows or the whys. I'm just simply stating the reality is he never won a competitive Oscar, mm-hmm. regardless of how many times he was nominated. And it's, it's one thing to say that he deserves a lifetime achievement for a body of work, but then it's another thing to say, but if he got if he has this wonderful body of work that's some of the best in the history of cinema then how come he needs a lifetime achievement why didn't he get it then and yet he gets a statue right um and and it's and so it's very it's a very precarious line of thought to say well, this deserves an Oscar, but this just deserves a mention. Or this deserves this kind of a, a mention, and this deserves a certificate. Or this deserves this kind of display, and this deserves something else. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be distinctions. And again, like I had alluded to in the pre-show, I, I, I am definitely aware of the idea of you know dropping that stone in the water. Right? It's the it's the ripple that you know spreads out and causes the wave and everything. I, I get that. And I don't want this popular Oscar to turn into that. But I don't know that it's necessarily also as right to just say, well, just because it's a popular movie doesn't mean it should be as celebrated as Best Picture. True, but the Best Picture doesn't always have the Best Actor and Best Actress in it. And yet, that Best Picture still gets an Oscar, too. And maybe the best director doesn't win best picture or so on and so forth. Um, and I also think that a lot will come a lot more understanding will come to light once the details of who gets to receive this popcorn Oscar 
when it lands. Will the director get it? Will a producer get it? Will it be like an honorary ensemble cast win that gets displayed at the studio or something? Does the studio get it? Does And if so, does it go to the CEO? Does it go to the chief, the, the president, right? So I think a lot of it's also going to be who gets that, who physically gets to take the take that award. Whoever got paid less. <laughs> yeah, whoever got paid the least. Chris Pine signs on magically for Star Trek Four. No, um <laughs> That what a perfect way to bring this full circle. That's a great way to bring the news full circle. <laughs> Anyways, so that's where we're at. But yeah. Um so it'll be interesting. I, I really at the end of the day, I definitely want to see what the physical qualifi- qualifications become. Because right now I'm very open to it, but I'm I'm still somewhat like where you're at, Tim. I don't want I don't want this to just be some kind of throwaway thing either. So, yeah. Anyways, so that it brings us to the end of the news, or does it? Did you have anything else you needed to throw in there, Tim? Uh, no. I mean, since we're not doing news next week, I the last thing I was just going to talk about was an article from Film School Rejects. Sony will never stop with the Spider-Man spinoffs, written by Brad Gullickson, and pretty much it just talks about how. The Spider-Man universe has over 900 characters and Sony feels pretty confident that the Spider-Verse can compete with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm looking forward to Venom. I like the ideas that they're uh, putting forth for Venom. Uh, The movie looks very interesting. I just can see this getting old pretty quickly because the good thing with the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that you have all these vast characters from different spectrums. Now, I'm not super familiar with the Spider-Verse. I don't know if you can actually do this with it. There's only so much you can do with making separate movies for the Green Goblin, Dr. Octopus, Sandman, the Lizard, the Vulture, you know. I don't think people really are have a hankering for solo villain movies, you know, especially if they don't tie in with Spider-Man or one another. So that's really all I wanted to say about that. But if you want to check it out, filmschoolrejects.com. Sony will never stop with the Spider-Man spinoffs written by Brad Gullickson, and it was published on August 10th. Meanwhile, Disney reacts to the news with good, good, bankrupt yourself. We'll just buy it back. (laughs) All right. Well, next week we're going to be bringing back our longest, uh, our, our, our longest gone segment, the, the prodigal segment, as it were. I'm the only one who hated it. That's right. It is a segment, since we haven't done it in damn near a year and a half. It is a segment in which it is a critically acclaimed and or audience favorite, right? So big money maker movie and or critically acclaimed movie that everyone seems to know and love, but not for me and not for Tim. Um, and we'll be doing that next week. And so without further ado, I guess it's time to get to some movies. What do you say, sir? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's the movie. (laughs) 
so this week's movies are Black Klansmen and Three Identical Strangers. Where do you want to start, sir? My least favorite was, I hate saying it, but Black Klansmen. What was your least favorite? Uh, actually, they tied this week. Spoiler alert, fours across the board. There's never been a black cop in this city. We think you might be the man to open things up around here. Hello, this is Ron Stallworth calling. Well, who am I speaking with? This is David Duke. Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. That David Duke? God. Last time I checked. What can I do you for? Well, since you asked, I hate blacks. I hate Jews, Mexicans, and Irish, Italians, and Chinese. But my mouth to God's ears, I really hate those black rats. And anyone else, really, that doesn't have pure white Aryan blood running through their veins. I'm happy to be talking to a true white American. God bless white America. The KKK is planning an attack. How do you propose to make this investigation? We'll establish contact over the phone. We'll need a white officer to play me when they meet face to face. You for the white race, Ron? Oh, hell yeah. So there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? With the right white man, we can do anything. When's the last time they let a rookie lead an investigation? Oh, that's right. Never. <laughs> OK. Become his friend. Let's get invited back. So what kind of stuff are you guys do? Cross burdens, marches. This is fixing to be a big year for us. You ask too many questions. You're undercover or something? We must unite and organize to fight racism. Are you down for the liberation of black people? Power to the people. All power to all the people. All power to all the people. It's racist. For you, it's a crusade. For me, it's a job. You're Jewish. That hatred, doesn't that piss you off? You're taking this Jew lie detector test. Why are you acting like you ain't got skin in the game? I'm telling you, the wars are coming. Black power! Black power! Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. That's us, Stallworth brothers. We're on a roll, baby. America first. America first. America first. If I would have known this was a Klan meeting, I wouldn't have taken this mother. So here we go. It's a 2018 American biographical crime film, co-written and directed by Spike Lee, based based on the Black. Good Lord, can I not read today? I'm sorry. Based on the memoir Black Klansman uh, from 2014 by Ron Stallworth. Uh, film stars uh, John David Washington, Adam Driver, Laura Harrier, Topher Grace, amongst an, amongst others in a cast. Uh, that even includes the likes of Alec Baldwin and Harry Belafonte. But uh, what we have here is a film that opens, right, uh, with the Gone with the Wind set and everything, and r goes to a, you know, quote, scientific explanation of white supremacy, right? Moves then to 1972, and uh, Ron Stallworth uh, is hired. Ron Stallworth, again, played by um, John David Washington. He is hired on as the very first black uh, detective in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And he is, of course, having to deal with racism in the job and all that kind of stuff. But eventually works his way into getting a an undercover assignment um, that proves his worth to a certain degree and then ultimately lands him in the intelligence division where he finds an advertisement to join the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, Stallworth actually um, 
in our uh, in a, in a wonderful nod to sorry to bother you actually calls up and pretends to be a white guy who unfortunately uses the name uh Ron Stallworth and wants to join through the shenanigans of of recruiting uh Felix Kendrickson uh, I'm sorry not Felix Kendrickson uh Zimmerman Flip Zimmerman sorry who is played Flip Zimmerman played by Adam Driver they now have an actual white Stallworth to go and show up at the meeting and go get involved. And of course, it looks like the KKK is planning bombings and stuff. And so now they actually have a reason to have police presence and an investigation to pursue. It also should be noted that Flip, uh, Flip Zimmerman is Jewish. Uh, shenanigans ensue, as they say, and what does ever become of this pair of people who help make the Black Klansman reality? Now, I, I mean, anyone who is, who is familiar with Spike Lee knows that he makes movies that have an agenda. Now, they are important movies, generally speaking, and they are usually, uh, high quality in terms of production and in acting. It's usually just the script where you've either got the strong story that's going to hold it the whole time, or it's not. And that's usually where it falters. Um, something that has always, but, but something that has always lasted throughout all of his joints, as he calls them, uh, all, even from Do the Right Thing on up, is that the political motivations behind the films themselves are meant to carry the day. Even when the stories, as they're written, don't work. to Don't work to the degree that you would like them to. This has definitely been hailed as a return to form uh, for Spike Lee. And I think in terms of the physical storytelling, it's, it, it, he does a good job overall. I am very, I, I really am impressed with Adam Driver and John David Washington in this film. Topher Grace, eh, Take him, take him or leave him. Um, he plays David Duke in the film, but, uh, I don't know. It's not, uh, it's not a caricature, so I'll give him that. They actually did try to put a little bit of nuance to him, but at the same time, I don't think that they really brought forward the, the degree with which David Duke menaced the United States in his heyday because what David Duke was, was a very smart, capable and oh gosh, eloquent is the word I'm looking for. And I know this sounds completely counterintuitive when you're dealing with something like the KKK, but a very eloquent speaker and someone who was able to use very subtextualized, de derisive speech, but make it sound perfectly reasonable. And that was the power of David Duke. And, and, it's, and I think that the movie, in focusing on the lunacy of the KKK and making the, sta making the statement of the intelligence behind the... Um, not just what John... Uh, not Ron Stallworth, sorry, is trying to achieve 
along with Zimmerman, but also even Patrice and everything she was trying to work towards in her community, that you get to see that kind of militant aspect and why the militancy was vital in the movement, but you don't see the draw from the other side, which I think is something that's really, really important to this story. Um, and so that kind of hurt the movie a bit for me. And then we come to the end framing video, just the last few moments of the, of the movie where it taught, where it shows the, uh, unite the right rally from Charlottesville back in 2017, um, shows the car attack and everything. And of course, closes with, um, Trump's statements about blame on many sides. Okay. And I felt that, I felt that it kind of hurt Lee's position in the, in the political motivation of the film. And it kind of undoes a little bit more of what the film had going for it. Not because you can, agree or disagree with the statements, not because you can agree or disagree with the rally, um, and not because you you don't get a say in whether or not you agree that it's right or wrong that the rally took place in the at all. I think that it ignored that by choosing to to close the film on that on that sentimentality and that statement, the way that you bookend it like that, to make it look like this is truly the state of race relations in America as of 2017 is, I don't know, slightly disingenuous because there are many complexities that go into a lot of the things that caused that rally to take place. I don't agree with that rally at all, but we're kind of getting into this big, huge, divisive thing where we're going back and forth between the idea of what's right and what's wrong, and everybody wants to be in the camp that they get to belittle and deride their opponent so that you can feel justified in ignoring them. And when you do that, you don't allow for discussion. There's no way to ever... It, 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 you may not ever change a heart, the hearts and minds, but you can always sow the seeds of change. And that's kind of, for me, what I think the message of the film should have been. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, so ultimately I give the movie a four out of five. I really like the movie and I think it's a good movie and I'm glad that Spike Lee is coming back and has, and, and is willing to have these discussions because I think it opens up the ability to discuss it. I just don't like the bookends that were chosen and I don't like, um, that there's more there. there it's not complete caricature for the KKK, but it's also not, there's, I don't feel that there was also enough to demonstrate how seriously pernicious people like David Duke were back in the 70s and 80s um, to, to give a more potent reason for people like uh, Ron Stallworth to have done what they did. So there we go. Sorry, long way down. Four out of five. Check this movie out. Tim, what do you got, sir? 
How many people were at the theater when you saw it? Oof. Um, not a whole lot. I want to say about a third, but I went, uh, I went early morning. Were they enjoying it? Were they laughing? Were they cheering or? I would say, I mean, honestly, it was a pretty mixed crowd. Um, and so I was actually surprised to see, uh, the younger people there. I, I assumed it was going to be more older people because of how early in the morning it was. Cause I mean, it was like a, you know, 11 o'clock, whatever, but generally you don't, you don't see a whole lot of the younger uh, crowd there that early. Um, they tend to, you know, come up. So it was a pretty mixed crowd. I'd say probably about a third of the movie theater was full. So I don't know. It was yeah. a smaller theater. So but like, like you didn't have any people upset and walk out. Oh no, no, there was no, no, I did there was none of that. Uh, people chuckled. People laughed at certain points where the, where it was clearly funny uh, and everything. Um, I think that and and where the movie was trying to make more statements and stuff, people were thoughtful about it. But no, there was there was no, to my knowledge, I didn't see any kind of disgust or anything. And quite frankly, if you're gonna get disgusted and get angry at this movie and walk out, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> this is this is not the movie for you. So anyway, I mean, obviously, well, I hope it's obvious that um, the material what the movie is 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 trying to go for, what it stands for. I'm all about right off the bat. My only criticisms are really it's just the filmmaking and uh, the overall kind of structure of the film. I think this story is a fascinating, fascinating story. Um, I went back and did a little bit of research in the real Ron Stallworth, I suppose, in the book that came out like four years ago or so. And I kind of wished Spike Lee stayed true to the book a little bit more because the movie itself feels a little over the top. But then you have like these moments of like realization of holy shit, like he is making a statement. This movie is making a statement. It is obvious that they're making a statement. And I think those statements would have came across maybe truer and more effective for me as an avid film goer if the overall movie itself, the entertainment factor, I suppose, was toned down a little bit and maybe a little more realistic because it felt like he was really trying to play for laughs and the laughs are really hit or miss because when you look at a couple of the clansmen especially the bigger guy who every time somebody says something that's a little off key he just has that really dumb southern hillbilly laugh and it's not funny because and that's what they keep going towards especially with the clan and it's not like they're all laughing like that it's mainly that one guy. Just stuff like that happens repeatedly throughout the film where they just keep relying on a specific joke or gag that not only does it be come off repetitive and slightly annoying, it, to me, completely undermines the message. And on top of that, you also have the agenda, I guess just smacking you in the face by the time the film is over. And again, I mean, I, it's a very important message. It's a very important, I guess, agenda to get across. But I have a feeling that the people that choose to go and see this movie are already familiar with it and quite possibly are already backing that 
agenda. It, saying agenda to me kind of feels like I'm saying something bad. You know, I, I hopefully saying that he had an agenda or the movie has an agenda isn't like a negative implication or anything. I don't mean that at all. But we already know how, how Spike Lee feels towards race in America. We also know how he feels about Birth of a Nation. So I liked very much how he began the movie with Alec Baldwin and kind of going off of like the, the feeling of 50s and 60s cinema and then really beginning the movie with that cool shot. Of, really, it's a beautiful shot in Gone with the Wind where the movie pulls back and you see all the dead white soldiers and it's supposed to be this patriotic thing. And then you find out, oh, they're Confederates. But it feels like it belongs to a different movie. And the last thing I'll say is that Black Klansman is an unconventional crowd pleaser. The flick at times genuinely is funny, and the story is of course very entertaining, but everything for which the audience is being set up to cheer for is rather sad once you think about it. Because we've all been taught since grade school about the civil rights movement, and we currently see on TV the countless reports on the deteriorating middle to lower classes. Uh, as well as the increase of the impoverished and police brutality and the social and political abandonment. All of this mostly affects the African-American and the Mexican-Americans. And we hardly ever think about how far we haven't come since the 1970s. And to me, that is really what Spike Lee nails with this film. You watch it, and there are a lot of parallels. At times, you feel like they're making direct riffs on Trump, and a couple times, it's a little too obvious that they're doing that because they pause for laughter or for cheers. To me, that's playing a little bit to the audience with the material, and I, that just really, to me, doesn't call for you know a, a good piece of filmmaking or, or a good filmmaking moment. But a lot of the rhetoric we hear from Trump in, in his cabinet come directly from the 60s and 70s, from Nixon, you know, and Johnson. So history repeats itself. And what are we doing about it? You know, there. I, I liked seeing how the Black Power movement, you know, the Black Panthers, you know, a lot of people, when they look at it, some of them were violent, and a lot of them sounded like they had a violent attitude, but they were very emotional about what they were saying. And most of them wanted freedom for all, but they have been put in the closet. You know, they've been left in the dark for so long, for generations and centuries, I should say. And, you know, with all that pent-up anger, they felt this is the time for us to do something, and we're seeing that now. And so the movie does a great job in making those comparisons. And it doesn't directly make those comparisons. It allows the audience to make those comparisons. So hopefully, with making those comparisons, we can acknowledge it and do something about it. I like the movie. I didn't love it. I liked it. And I will definitely see this one again. However, I'm giving it a 3.5 out of 5. I'm only rating this movie based on the filmmaking itself, the quality of the film itself, not because of the messages, not because of the politics, not because of any of that. I'm for it, but because of the filmmaking. 3.5 out of 5. Absolutely. And just to be clear, because I also used the word agenda, I have no problem with anyone putting an agenda in their films. Um, I just, you know, 
I just don't necessarily, I think it has to be okay for the audience to not, uh, to, to disagree with it if they so choose. And I mean, the, the, the sad part is, is that Tim mentioned, uh, you know, ever since grade school, we've learned about all these things, you know, the civil rights movement and how important all these things are. And that's not just Tim, that's me. I mean, I've, I mean, we, we, we joke about it, but I'm about 10 years older than Tim. And so, I mean, literally since the very early 80s, we've got damn near 40 years of people being taught about the importance of the civil rights movement and how evil the KKK is and all that kind of stuff and all of the bullshit. So, I, I again, I think that the message behind standing up for what's right and putting a stop to things like the KKK, absolutely, all sorts of great stuff. Uh, which is why I was, yeah, which is why, like I said earlier, you know, if you're going to show up at that movie and be offended, what the fuck are you doing at that movie? Uh, that's just, uh, anyway, I don't know. All right, well. And, and there's also, of course, a difference between, just real quick, of sure. the agenda or the message behind this movie and something like Birth of a Nation or movies that are made to be hateful, to be made in spite of, you know, of somebody's culture. And we all know white supremacy, that's not a humane culture. You know what I mean? It's oh, evil. It not. is evil. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. And I just, yeah, I don't know. And that's, and see, that's where, that's where I always like am so, that's why I'm, I, I am, I'm like slightly critical of the, of the end of the film where they show that rally because I don't know. I guess maybe it's because I don't, uh, on a personal level, I just, I, I, I look at that stuff and I'm like, how fucking stupid is it? You know? I just, so, I don't know. The, the event itself, what, what happened? Yes, yes, that, that event, yeah. yeah. Like I said, I don't think that event should have happened at all. You know? And by any stretch of the imagination. And so, and, 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 and when you do those kinds of things and showcase it in a movie like that, that's why you start have to asking questions. You have to ask those questions of what led to, you know, what led to that rally and everything. So I don't know. It, yeah. It, but clearly this is a go see it from both of us. And because we want to hear what you guys have to, what, what you have to say about it. Uh, this, and again, I would say Spike Lee has returned to form on this, even if I don't agree necessarily with the bookends of it. You got Just something like from the movie. Goes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely get something from the movie, so check it out. All right, well then, last but not least, we've got Three Identical Strangers, 2018 documentary film directed by Tim Wardle. So, let's find out what that one's about. I wouldn't believe the story if someone else were telling it, but it's true, every word of it. It started when I went to college. It was the first day of school. All these people are coming up to me saying, Eddie, how are you? Eddie, hi. I'm like, my name's not Eddie. I don't know what you're talking about. As soon as this guy turned around, I knew it was Eddie's double. I said, you're not going to believe this. You have a twin brother. Oh, my God. As I reached out to knock on the door, it opens. And there I am. His eyes are my eyes, and my eyes are his eyes, and it's true. And then the story went from being amazing to incredible. It was an article to Twins Reunited. I think I might be the third. We 
When people ask me what is the most remarkable story you ever encountered, I tell them it's the story of the triplets. You guys have been on the front page of every newspaper in the world. True. True. They were more like clones than they were like brothers. It was a miracle. There was nothing that could keep us apart. That's when things kind of got funky. Something was just not right. They separated these boys at birth. The parents had never been told that there were two other children. What was the purpose? Why? How could you not tell us? They're trying to conceal what they did from the people they did it to. When you play with humans, you do something very wrong. It would be evil enough to come up with something like this. There's a lot of powerful people who would like to have the story silenced. There's still so much that we don't know. It boggles the mind. It's a mystery. I'd like to know the truth. That's right. This is a movie examining a set of American triplets who were adopted at a young age by separate families, unaware that each child had brothers. Now, this was actually done um, by, as a part of a nature versus nurture twin study that was meant to track the development of genetically identical siblings raised in differing circumstances. And they were they were literally put in a blue-collar family, a middle-class family, and an upper-class family. And you just kind of watched these kids go, you know, as they lived their lives. And this covers uh, Robert Shaffron, Edward Galland, and David Kelman. Um, and... So they were born in 1961 to a single mom. And again, this was done at the direction of a Jewish adoption agency. And then uh, two and two psychiatrists also were involved in this. And so they send one to a, a blue collar family, not necessarily low class, low class, but lower middle class at best. One solidly middle class, one definitely upper class family. And then they watch them. Kind of the idea was well, let's see what happens. How much does nature have to do with the way people turn out versus how much is nurture? Um, so these people are so, so these guys are raised. They actually discovered one another uh, about 1980 or so. One of the guys literally goes to college, and they're like, you know, hey, 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 and I can't remember, uh, I can't, I can't remember who was who, but basically. You know, it's like David goes and they're all like, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. And he's like, wait, I'm not Bobby. Uh, uh, my name's David. And they're like, wow, you look just like this Bobby character. And then sure enough, they meet up and they're like, holy crap, we look exactly alike. And then sure, they find, they ultimately find out that they are identical. And then same thing, you know, they're, now they're kind of getting, you know, like news stories are being done about them and everything. And one guy is like, man, <laughs> I look like those guys too. So they end up meeting up, and sure enough, yes, they are triplets. Um, but, but it kind of goes, you would think it's like happy reunion from there, and briefly it is, but then they kind of, it, it, it kind of goes into an introspective mode of what does this mean? How different are we really? And, and what happens to our lives now that we've lived so far apart and so differently when we didn't necessarily have to. Um, it also covers uh, depression, which can run in families. 
And so how do you reconcile that against nature versus nurture, uh, especially when you're raised so differently? And what would that have been like had they not necessarily been separated? Um, ultimately, there are some, you know, final, I guess, aspects to their lives that the movie covers. Um, but for me, I, I felt that the movie definitely makes the case for not necessarily nature versus nurture or what did these people, what did this study do to these poor men? As much as it is the nature of family. And this movie, I think, does a really good job of of asking those questions and kind of addressing what it means to have a family and making your family your own. And sometimes that means making your family out of people you didn't grow up with. And I know for me, that's why the people I deem friends are, are my family. It's not, it's not for nothing that they say friends are the family you choose. And I think it's a very solid documentary overall. I, I don't think it's, I, I clearly don't think it's the best, but really, I just kind of feel like, um, I, I don't know. I feel like some of the interview techniques, um, were a little more leading than others. And that kind of led to the bias. Like you could kind of see the bias that the film was trying to make. Um, which is fine. It's a documentary. It's meant to document something, but at the same time, it is meant to, to document something from a certain point of view. And I think people do lose that um, when they think about documentaries. They think documentaries are neutral. Very rarely are they. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. But if, you're, if you are going to have a bias, then you need to come right out and say it. This movie doesn't do that, um, but does feel like it kind of leads that way occasionally. Uh, and so for that, I give it a four out of five. It's still really good. I would definitely recommend it. I, it's pretty much ended its theatrical run at this point. Um, if you can still catch it, great. Please do so. Otherwise, make sure you check this as soon as it comes out on VOD and or Blu-ray. Bring us home there, Tim. It's a fascinating story that raises a lot of interesting questions and or I guess frightening questions for a lot of people. You know, the morals and scientific testing or studies and the effects it can have on one's psychology. And even the movie dabbles in the effects of instant fame on the common person. When the celebrity status and the pressure happens to someone who has never had a taste of it before. Truly heartbreaking stuff here. And it doesn't really put your mind at ease pertaining to these psychiatric studies. Really, the only thing that bugged me about this film was that it felt a little too much like talking heads. You have these ridiculous close-ups of these people telling their story, and in some points it felt like they were performing, especially when things got sad. They all spoke in the same way you know like the brothers looked and always sounded sad and then it went to like the lady who helped with the study and this other doctor who did the studies they come across as evil because their interview setup was drastically different from these other guys so it feels a little bit divisive 
but I do believe that this documentary is truly more memorable than the Mr. Rogers documentary. In fact, I can say the same thing about another documentary that I saw a couple of weeks ago called Generation Wealth. Uh, I thought that one was far more memorable than the Mr. Rogers documentary. So if you had a chance to go see either this film, uh, either this doc or the Mr. Rogers one, I recommend Three Identical Strangers. It's a good one. I give it a 4.5 out of 5. It was just the interview setups felt a little mismatched and pressured on the audience. All right, well, that does bring us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies, what are they going to be, Tim? Paul Schrader's first reformed on VOD, and Betsy West and Julie Cohen's documentary, RBG, in theaters and on VOD. Well, then I guess without further ado, that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. But what irritates me, Marion, if that's the right word for it, is that, that you won't tell me the truth. You can't say the obvious. You can't admit that you lied. That's what I don't like, Marion, having to play this charade. God, Ralph, how does this start? Do you know how this started? Because I really... I really don't Marianne, know look how at me. started! You don't have any panties you know on! Started because I don't know what do you think started. you are? One of your goddamn paintings? Marion, I'm giving you a chance to come clean. Clear the slate. On to a higher consciousness. And then don't ever lie to me again, Marion. This is not like you, Ralph. What? To demand you're right, Marion, but I wanna know. I wanna know the truth. We're just talking, right? Yes, Marion, we're just talking! You want me to tell you the truth? That's all I've ever asked, Marion! Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard the Information Superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud. And if you'd like to support the show, please feel free to do that by going to patreon.com. And until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Laura Harrier, I get to say this. I think living in the city, it's so easy to forget that you're attached to the earth. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, very well, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur.
Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.